Good evening. I'm Joni Albrecht, director of the John Marshall Center for Constitutional History and Civics, which as of July 4th is now a study center at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I'm delighted to welcome you to this evening's lecture and also want to extend a very special welcome to Mr. Sam Olmschneider and his students from Maggie Walker Governor's School, We the People program. <laughs> Let's give them a round of applause. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monica Nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former chairman and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. I wanted to highlight a few upcoming events so you can make sure they're on your radar. Next Thursday, July 20th, I hope you'll join us as we welcome Teasel Muir Harmony. She is the curator of the Apollo Collection at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. It's a noontime lecture, Apollo to the Moon, A History in Objects. Dr. Muir Harmony reassesses the history of Project Apollo through rare artifacts of the space age, examining how the project affected people both within the space program and civilians around the world. The following Thursday, July 27th, we present at the cannon's mouth, Battlefield Relics and the Making of Civil War Memory. It's a 6 p.m. evening lecture. Dr. James Brumall will explore collected and clung to battlefield objects and their fascinating connection to the construction of memory. And finally, on Thursday, August 3rd, Mills Kelly will guide us through Virginia's Lost Appalachian Trail. That's a noontime lecture. Dr. Kelly will explore a 50 mile stretch of the AT, which was lost to a rerouting in 1952. It's all but forgotten by hikers today but not to the residents of the southwestern Virginia counties that the trail used to cross. All of these events are in-person lectures and will also be live streamed on the museum's Facebook and YouTube channels. And now for today's talk, a constitutional commonwealth. State constitutions are one of the most innovative, most of, one of the most important innovations that Americans made when we gained independence from Britain. Yet they are an often overlooked piece of history. In the words of George Washington, the writing of such a document requires infinite care and unbounded attention. We are thrilled to welcome Virginia's expert on such words, Brent Tarter, to discuss how Virginia's constitutional evolution reflects how the people in Virginia have lived over time, and more importantly, how they have lived differently than people in other states. Brent's book, Constitutional History of Virginia, covers more than 300 years of Virginia's legislative policy, from colony to statehood, and it reveals a fascinating backstory. Brent is the Library of Virginia's, is, I'm sorry, is the founder of the Library of Virginia's Dictionary of Virginia Biography and is a co-founder of the Virginia Forum. He is the author of numerous books, including The Grandees of Government, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia, Daydreams and Nightmares, A Virginia Family Faces Secession and War, and Virginia's and their histories. Please join me in welcoming Brent Tarter. Well, thank you for that nice introduction. And I thank the museum and the society for inviting me to come and talk about my new book. And I particularly want to thank the members of the audience for coming out on this hot and dreadfully humid night for a topic that most people would think was cold and dry. You know, this is the first book anybody ever wrote that traces the entire constitutional history of any one state. All of my fellow historians are in the doghouse on that. <laughs> As Caroline said in the beginning, State constitutions were one of the most revolutionary and important innovations that American made at the time of the American Revolution. But except for a very small number of historians who studied that one event, and except for some legal scholars 
and some political scientists who have studied particular constitutions or particular constitutional doctrines, such as the evolution of um, judicial review in the state courts, nearly everybody has neglected this topic. Why have they neglected this topic? I don't know. I mean, when I was in high school, when I was the age of these students here on the front row, I got interested in politics and I majored in political science in college. I have to admit that I got more interested in history in college and I graduated with more hours in my history minor than I had in my political science major, but I, it always stuck with me how important state laws and state constitutions are, even though nobody else pays very much attention. It's as if we get mesmerized by the federal constitution and the U.S. Bill of Rights by the national debates about rights that occur all the time in our political culture. You can't go online or read a newspaper or walk down the street without somebody talking about a right to vote or a right to an abortion or some other free speech or religious right that we have. And we trace those back for the most part to the Constitution of the United States and the US Bill of Rights, which is a mistake. These rights were first adumbrated in state constitutions long before the Constitutional Convention of 1787. The states were important in the beginning and they are still important. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm about to make a state right argument of the sort that used to be made that said slavery was not important and slavery didn't cause the Civil War and that massive resistance to desegregation of public schools was a state's right issue, it was a racial issue. I'm not trying to make that argument. I just want us to realize how important state government is and was and what it teaches us about our past and consequently about ourselves and our present. Think back to very recent history, the COVID-19 epidemic. Most of the media attention was on what the federal government was trying to do find money to compensate people whose businesses had to be closed, find money to try to stimulate the development of vaccines. Big developments, big arguments about centers for the disease control public policies. These filled our airways and our minds and absorbed our attention for a long time at the beginning of the epidemic, but it was state public health agencies that distributed and administered the vaccines. It was state and local public health agencies, school administrators, mayors, governors, uh, directors of public agencies who made policy recommendations or promulgated regulations to try to promote and preserve public health during that epidemic. So it was a cooperative enterprise, even though what the states did, which was extraordinarily important, largely got lost in the national political noise. That has unfortunately been the case almost throughout American history. State constitutions, the laws made under the authority of state constitutions, are extremely important to us. More important to us most of the time than what the feds are doing. It's state laws enacted under the authority of state constitutions that enable us to purchase or rent a place to live. It's state laws enacted under state constitutions that allow us to operate a motor vehicle. It's state laws and state constitutions that provide our public safety and our, you know, our, our police and our fire protection, our public health officers. And it's state constitutions and state laws that for the most part govern what kind of public education our children and our grandchildren can receive. If you look farther back, not just at the recent history of the epidemic, but look farther back to the beginning of the Republic in 1776, you'll find that Virginia state constitutions have allowed some people to prosper and become wealthy and politically influential. And at the very same time, those constitutions and laws have condemned other people to lifetime slavery. Those constitutions and laws have 
governed what kind of education our children can receive, if any. And that the most basic and fundamentally important um, ingredient of representative democracy is state laws and state constitutions that have decreed who may vote and who may not and why. These are really important issues in all of our lives, and they largely derive from state law. Now, every state has a different constitution. Every state's constitution has its own past. Some states have had half a dozen or more constitutions. Virginia has had seven or eight, depending on how you count. Those constitutions change as the decades and the centuries pass because the people in the state demand different things of their government. When the first Virginia constitutions were written, when the federal constitution was written, nobody expected the level of police protection that we all demand of our public officials and public uh, offices today. Nobody expected fire protection to be a public uh, responsibility. Nobody expected public health to be a responsibility. Nobody expected the government to build roads or airports or subsidized railroads. None of that existed. Nobody thought about any of that. But now those things are integral parts of our lives. We depend on them every day. And it's the states that do them. It's not the feds that do them. I'm not going to harp on this anymore, although I could go on a pretty considerable length. But this is of fundamental importance. If you look back over the long term, this is what historians do. If you look back over the long term of the changes to the Virginia constitutions that began really in April 1606, April 1606, when King James I issued the first charter for the Virginia Company of London, which was a commercial investment venture to authorize some English people to pool their money and occupy a certain portion of the Atlantic coast of North America and try to make money out of it. That charter created the first informal business government for Virginia. After the king revoked the third charter in 1624, Virginia had no constitutional document. There was nothing from 1624 until 1776 that resembled a modern U.S. or state constitution. No document that specified what the institutions of government were, how they were to interact with one another, how the people and the government of the colony to, to interact with the king and the parliament. Nevertheless, during that long period, Virginians constantly referred to their constitution. What did they mean? They referred to the constitution of Virginia in the same way that Englishmen and Britons have always referred to their constitution, with the incorrect adjective of unwritten, an unwritten constitution. Well, it's not unwritten. It's just not all written in one place the way we think of constitutions as specific documents that embody the governmental elements of the social contract. They specify what the institutions of government are, how their officers are to be elected or selected or appointed, what their responsibilities are, what their limitations are, what obedience people owe them, and what responsibilities people have toward making those institutions work for the benefit of everybody. There was no such thing in the colonial period. When the colonial period people referred to their constitution of Virginia, they referred to all of the documents, governmental institutions, practices, habits, and understandings that they shared about how the government was to work in this one colony, what the relationship of that government was to the king, what the relationship of the people of this colony was to the king. It's not an unwritten constitution. It's just that you have to look all over the place to find scattered bits of it in laws that the assembly passed, in uh, orders that the king sent out to the royal governors, in the courts and the legislature and the executive agencies that in some instances the king created. And in other instances, and this is really important, in other instances, in institutions that 
Virginians created and the king accepted as legitimate. Before 1776, the King of England was the only legitimate source of political governmental authority in Virginia. That's what it meant to be king then. Doesn't mean that anymore, but it did then. Virginians were very innovative during the colonial period in creating governmental institutions and political practices that suited their needs. Let me modify that. Virginia tobacco planters were very innovative in creating institutions and political practices that suited their needs. Virginia in the colonial period was in, in no way a representative democracy in the way that we think of it. Maybe, I mean, the, the, they limited the voting to adult white men who owned a certain minimum amount of land. So maybe two thirds to three quarters of enough white men in Virginia in the colonial period owned enough land to be able to vote, and maybe a half to two-thirds of them voted at any given election. No women voted, no black people voted, no American Indians voted. So it was not a representative democracy by any stretch of the imagination. It represented, in effect, the interests of the tobacco planters. Virginia's government for the first three centuries was, in fact, a government of the tobacco planters, for the tobacco planters, and by the tobacco planters. If you look at what happened when they created the first state constitution in 1776, they wrote a very short constitution that in effect kicked out of the government of Virginia the king and the royal institutions that he had appointed and through which the king and his ministers controlled many public affairs in Virginia. And at the same time, that constitution continued in force and in some instances, amplified the authority of the institutions that Virginia tobacco planters had created for themselves during the colonial period. So that it continued to be a kind of oligarchy of planters in Virginia for another 75 years after the American Revolution began. Not until 1850 that the third Virginia state constitution allowed voters to elect anybody else other than members of the General Assembly. Members of the General Assembly were the only regularly elected public officials in Virginia from the beginning of the colonial period to 1851, with the, with the exception of a few city councils in the 19th century, and there weren't very many of them. But in 1850, they began a constitutional revolution of extreme importance, so important that nobody's ever noticed it before. This is one of those things that falls in, within Sherlock Holmes's uh, definition of some, the things that are most likely to get overlooked are the ones that are so conspicuous that you don't see them. Between 1850 and 1870, five groups of Virginians wrote five state constitutions. Now, one of them was for West Virginia, but it was Northwestern Virginians who wrote it. One of them was for the Confederate government of Virginia and voters refused to ratify it. And one of them was for what we call the restored government of Virginia, uh, a convention elected by, by a small number of voters from a small number of counties where a majority of the white people either remained loyal to the United States during the Civil War or those areas were either occupied or liberated by the United States Army during the Civil War. And then the last of these constitutions, which went into effect in, in 1869 and 1870, allowed black men to vote for the first time in Virginia. Let me just list some of the things that happened in this 20 year period. You get universal white manhood suffrage for the first time. You get universal black manhood suffrage for the first time. You voters for the first time get an opportunity to elect a governor, to elect local officials like the sheriff and the justice of the peace and the mayors and the judges. In 1869, you get a mandate in the new state constitution that the General Assembly will create a statewide system of free public schools for all children. That was new too. 
1869, the Constitution that went into effect that year, specifically, specifically guaranteed all Virginians equal rights under the law. This was before the 15th Amendment, before the 14th Amendment. In that 20-year period, the old legacy of the colonial government, of the tobacco planters, was entirely swept away in favor of a democratic new form of government, still in, excluded Indians, still excluded women, still excluded children, but it was much more inclusive than it had ever been before. And for the first time, people were able to elect a great many public officials. It became a local and state governments that were in sync with what other people elsewhere in the country were doing at the same time in the middle of the 19th century. I think we all know what happened after that. Black voters were never a majority anywhere in Virginia, except in a very small number of counties. White voters were. And during the next 25 or 30 years, white supremacists succeeded in undoing much of that revolution. They kept the schools. They kept the schools. White voters who had not been able to vote before 1850 and had not been able to send their children to a public school before 1850, were as enthusiastic about the new public school system in the 1870s as were the freed people and their children. But through subterfuge and end runs and smoke screens and lots and lots of lying dishonesty, white supremacists succeeded in getting a new constitutional convention called in 1902 for the express purpose of driving as many black voters out of public life as possible. They made no secret about this. They bragged about it. They, they said in public exactly what they wanted to do and why. And they succeeded. The Constitution of 1902 put in the poll tax for a prerequisite to vote, and it created such an extraordinarily complicated and convoluted process of registration and poll tax paying that it defeated many, many people who tried to register and vote. The number of black voters dropped by about 90%, and the number of white voters dropped by nearly 50%. Many white voters were illiterate, were poor, could not figure out how to defeat these processes that were put in place, or they were Republicans. If a black or a white Republican showed up at a, any kind of a, uh, you know, the, the treasurer's office to pay a poll tax early in the 20th century, or showed up at a registration office, or showed up at a polling place, the white Democratic election officials knew who they were. And they prevented them by whatever means was necessary from paying their poll tax, or from registering, or from voting. They had to get around the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. You remember that, 1870. No state can uh, uh, deprive any male citizen of the right to vote based on, the students can tell me this, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Well, what they did is they disfranchised people for other reasons, for being too poor to pay a poll tax, for not getting a good enough education to be able to fill out a registration form unaided to living too far away from the registration office that they couldn't afford to leave their farms and their homes and their families to go register to vote. If the Constitution of 1902 was not important to everybody, I don't know what could be. The Constitution of 1902 cemented in place a regime of white supremacy, largely led by lawyers and businessmen, that had already taken control of the state government in the 1880s, and that continued to control state government until the 1960s, 80 years. 20% of the whole history of Virginia to that date. There was no democracy in this state. 
This was the era of the infamous bird machine, which could thrive only in an atmosphere of a severely restricted electorate based on racism. There's no doubt about that. Um, when I first started studying Virginia history 50 years ago, a lot of people were still claiming that, well, it wasn't about racism, it was about states' rights, it was about making sure that the voters were all uh, sufficiently literate and responsible. But when I started looking at the records and reading the speeches that those politicians made, I found out that was just not true. Absolutely not true. Caroline, in her introduction, mentioned a book that I wrote about 10 years ago that had the subtitle, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia. I actually came here and, and made a talk on that book in this very room about 10 years ago. And I wondered how much severe criticism I would get from people who grew up reading the textbooks that were uh, required in the state schools in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s that promulgated that old view of Virginia's history, that Virginia was the birthplace of American democracy, that slavery wasn't so bad, that slavery wasn't at the root of the Civil War, that opposition to massive resistance was a principal state's right issue, not a racial issue. And in fact, I remember thinking at the time that somebody is going to say, this is an unconstitutional history of Virginia. Nobody did, and I'm not sure why. I think it's either because the people who believed that old mythology thought they already knew everything and didn't want to read another book, or maybe I convinced them. I rather think it's because they didn't read it. It certainly would have peeved some people. Now, the one thing that you could see, if you look at this long history, oops, excuse me, if you look at this long history the way that I've been doing for the last decade, is that you see change in continuity operating simultaneously. I used some things about state constitutions, particularly who can vote and schemes of legislative representation, which are basically gerrymanders, as kind of mileposts along the way of the sometimes forward and sometimes backward progress of democratic government in Virginia. Writing that book convinced me that there's a more important story in state constitutional history than I had perceived or that anybody else had written. If you look at what happened in the 20th century, this is when we came to depend on police departments and fire departments and public health departments and public schools, public highway departments, where we built airports, we built train stations, where government assumed a very different and very much expanded role in our lives than it had ever had before. And the Constitution and the laws had to keep pace with that because that's what voters wanted, in spite of the old bird organization, which didn't want it. We had two things happened in the 1960s of fundamental national importance that made a big difference within the state of Virginia, and in fact, in every other state. One of them uh, I, I call the representation revolution. The, the students from the governor's school will recognize what I'm talking about. This was one of the, a series of Supreme Court rulings in the 1960s that required that all legislative districts in the state provide for substantially equal influence of every voter in every election. One person, one vote. The other thing was the civil rights movement, which produced a, a cascade of extraordinarily important civil rights cases in the federal courts, as well as a constitutional amendment against the poll tax, and the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965. These things dismantled the apparatus of American apartheid that had been created during the first decades of the 20th century. Much of that apparatus was specified in so many terms in the Constitution of 1902. The Constitution of 1902 restricted local government activities to such an extent that people couldn't borrow money, or their county governments or their city government couldn't borrow money to build school. That sounds insane. Well, it was. 
But, but people demanded change, and they got it. Eventually, through the agency of a constitutional revision commission, the General Assembly proposed a new state constitution, and voters ratified it in 1970, and it went into effect in 1971. It's the constitution under which we live right now. That constitution swept away all of the old racism. It swept away all but one of the old impediments to black voting. Swept away the poll tax. Swept away provisions for inequality in public education and public access. So that the Constitution of 1971 was one of the most progressive and inclusive and fair and democratic in the entire country. Exactly the opposite of what you would say about the Constitution that preceded it. That Constitution was very good. Best Constitution Virginia has ever had. One of the best Constitutions in the country at the time that it was ratified. Okay, let me ask a question then. Why, if that Constitution was one of the best in the country at the time, and why was it, if it was definitely the best Constitution in the history of Virginia, why was it that it had been amended about 60 times? That suggests that there's something fundamentally wrong with it, doesn't it? Many of the amendments, though, are very technical and minor like an amendment that was ratified about three or four years ago that allowed the General Assembly to permit local governments to give tax relief to veterans of uh, the Gulf War. I don't know why anybody thinks something like that should be in the Constitution to begin with. I mean, that's a legislative matter. That ought to, The legislature ought to just be able to decide what the taxes are. But there have been restrictions on the legislative and taxation authority in Virginia from the very beginning. And those restrictions have survived. Many of the provisions of early state constitutions and even of the colonial constitution have survived more or less silently and hidden in the state's subsequent constitutions. But I still maintain that it's the best state constitution we've ever had and a very good constitution. And it does allow for comparatively easy amendment when somebody wants to make a change of some fundamental importance. You know, among the most important changes that have been made to the Constitution of 1971 was the creation of what is called the Rainy Day Fund that authorizes the General Assembly to deposit a certain amount of tax money into a bank account every year so that during times when we have hard economic times and suddenly the sales tax revenue plunges the state government can draw on that fund and continue to operate rather than go insolvent. That rainy day fund was a major innovation and it has uh, smoothed out the ups and downs of the uh, state and national economies insofar as the operations of state and local governments are concerned. Another important innovation was the creation of what is called the veto session of the General Assembly. This went in, in the 1970s or 80s. And it authorized the General Assembly to come back into a session several weeks after the regular end of a session to consider amendments and vetoes that the governor recommended. Before that time, a great many bills would just die because the governor would veto them because they found out they were defective. And there was no way around that. This actually improves the legislative process by giving them some extra time to deal with those compromises and those amalgamations of bills that take place late in any legislative session. So it was a good constitution, it's still a good constitution, and it's been, been amended a lot of times. Let me conclude by reference to something that is somewhat ironic. Six times between 1776 and 1901, Virginians elected members of constitutional conventions to write new constitutions for the state. Well, eight times if you count the convention that was elected in 1792, the Western Virginians wrote a constitution for what was going to become Kentucky. And in the winter of 1861 and 1862, Northwestern Virginians wrote a constitution for what was going to become the state of West Virginia. 
So we're having election of constitutional conventions and meeting of constitutional conventions and debate about constitutional provisions and debate about ratification of conventions just almost every decade. For the first 125 years, we had six full-fledged constitutional conventions in Virginia that wrote constitutions for Virginia. We're almost 125 more years down the road without another convention at all. There's not been a constitutional convention in Virginia since the one that met in 1901. In fact, there's only been, I think, two constitutional conventions in the whole of the United States since 1970, and none since the 1980s. But people change constitutions. What's going on? What's going on? There was a major revision of the Virginia Constitution that voters ratified in 1928. And then there was this new constitution, which I think is the best one we've ever had, that was ratified in 1970 and went into effect in 1971. Conventions did not write those constitutions. The General Assembly wrote those constitutions. Now, people have difficulty understanding this because we all know that it's constitutional conventions that write constitutions but not all. What happened in, 19, in the 1920s and what happened again that brought about the Constitution of 1971 was that the governor recommended to the General Assembly that it create an expert body to suggest amendments to the Constitution or to suggest a new Constitution. And then the General Assembly took those suggestions and wrote a new Constitution and submitted to the voters for ratification in the form that is known in legislative procedure as an amendment in the form of a substitute. It starts, strike out everything and insert in lieu thereof. So it's an amendment in the form of a substitute. Voters ratified it in 1928 and they ratified the new one in 1970 that in effect created new constitutions without a constitutional convention. Here's a question that I have. Why do we let them get away with it? Throughout most of American history, it's constitutional conventions that write state constitutions, not general assemblies. These many amendments that we've had to the Virginia constitutions from 1910 through 2019 were all written by the General Assembly and submitted to the voters on a, let me, take it or leave it basis. Voters get a chance to ratify or reject. They have no say so in what's in the proposed amendment. Well, I mean, the voters in their sovereign capacity have the final say so on what goes into the Constitution and what does not. But they don't have any say so on what those provisions are. So that for nearly a century and a quarter now, we've been operating in a political environment in which the General Assembly is in control and driving not only legislative change, but also the process of constitutional change by submitting amendments to the Constitution in the regular form for voters to accept or reject. Without a convention, though, we don't stop. And all of us have a long debate, as they used to do in the revolutionary period and in the 19th century, about what should our government be like? What should the relationship between the state and federal governments be like? What should the relationship between the people and their governments be like? What changes should we make in the rights and responsibilities of citizens? What changes should we make in the rights and responsibilities of governmental institutions? We're not having those big, wide-ranging, fundamental debates that affect the very nature of American representative government. This, this is so obvious that nobody's noticed it. But there have not been any conventions in almost a century and a quarter in Virginia, and almost none anywhere else since World War II. Now, back to the beginning. One of the reasons why 
those of us who pay attention to state conventions have always regarded the revolutionary constitutional conventions as of extraordinarily importance is because those conventions shaped colonial institutions to fit a new independent Republican government model. They used conventions to do that, and they used conventions throughout the 19th century to do that, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But now, through a process of change that nobody hardly noticed, the driving force now here is not ideas, ideas of Jacksonian democracy or representative government um, of the sort that filled newspapers and debating halls in the 19th century. It's what legislators want, what legislators don't want, what legislators will submit to people, and what voters will ratify or not ratify. So it may be that in our modern time, those constitutional conventions, which I and many other people think were one of the most important developments in the American Revolutionary period, those, those are dead. They're gone. The legislatures have taken over the role of promoting constitutional change. Now, some of the changes they propose are good ones. I voted for them. Some are not so good. I voted against them. Some I couldn't understand. Um, don't tell anybody I said that. But still, it's not the people who are in the driver's seat. It's not the people exercising the sovereign will of the collective community who are now driving constitutional change. I don't know what that portends for the future. If the last century is any guide, but it isn't. All things being equal, we'll continue to do this. All things are never equal. Things always change. Economic change, demographic change, social change, social change. All of these things are happening around us and with us all the time. Somehow, we need to make sure that we have as much voice in that as possible. Now, I'm not going to gas on anymore. You don't want to hear me talk about this forever and a half. Um, we have some time. I would be glad to entertain any questions. And if I can't answer them, I'll just say so. I don't think it's smart for me to be making things up. But I would be glad to uh, hear what other people have to say. We have a couple of people with microphones. So if you'll raise a hand, uh, the microphone will enable everybody else in the audience to hear your question. Hey, thanks for doing this. I really enjoyed your book. Um, so I know this goes against the grain of what you were just talking about, but the, if the governor comes to you tomorrow and says, I want you to chair one of these commissions and we're going to fix the top three or five things that are wrong with the Constitution, where would you go? I would say no. <laughs> no I remember the, uh, Governor Godwin did essentially this in uh, 1968 when he asked Dick Howard, who was then a young professor at the University of Virginia School of Law and is now an old professor still teaching there, would he chair a commission to basically to rewrite a whole new constitution? And I've heard Dick Howard many times say, I said, well, sure, yeah, I'm a, I'm a law professor. We can do anything. But you know, there was not a single law school in the country that taught state constitutional law or history at the time. He had not even read most of the state constitutions, Virginia constitutions. So they had to make it up on the fly. They dragooned the law students and doing research papers on various aspects of things. And they produced a remarkable document in a remarkably short amount of time. Now, if I did make suggestions for changes in the state constitution, um, I think one of them that I would suggest is that they give serious consideration to modifying or eliminating the clause in the state constitution that permanently denies people who are convicted of felons of the right to vote. This went in in 1869 as one of many ways of preventing black men from voting. The white supremacists put it in the constitution of 1869 and they said why? Black people are inherently more dishonest than white people. They're going to steal chickens and pigs and stuff 
from decent white people in the same way that those enslaved people stole their owner's property. They called it the chicken thief amendment. Well, it's still there. Now, the legislature has provided means by which people can appeal to the governor to have voting rights restored. But for most people who are convicted of a felony, you get fined a certain amount of money, or you do a certain number of months or years in jail, but you get a life sentence of disfranchisement. There's no rehabilitation built into the state constitution. I don't believe that they thought about this very much when they rewrote the constitution of 1971. But we think about it now all the time. This is a big issue throughout the country. It's a state issue. It's in state constitutions and state laws that govern these things. So that's one thing that I would suggest that needs to be revised. I know that technically it's extremely difficult. Another thing that I would suggest is that they revisit the manner of the appointment of state judges. In Virginia, the General Assembly elects all circuit court judges, appellate court judges, and judges of the State Corporation Commission. Well, when, the, when that went into the Constitution early in the 20th century, um, Harry Byrd and his friends were in control of everything. They would elect whoever they wanted to be a judge. But now things are different. We now have a competitive two-party politics in the state. Right now, Republicans control one house of the General Assembly. Democrats control another house. There's a Republican governor. And they can't agree on who to appoint to positions of judicial responsibility. In fact, they're supposed to be filling vacancies on the Supreme of the uh, State Corporation Commission. There's two vacancies out of three. One more person goes off, retires, dies, gets run over by a truck. That's insane. There's too much partisanship in that election process. Now, there's going to be partisanship everywhere. That is government. It is politics. You can't get it out. But somebody needs to stand up and say, you politicians act like grown-ups. Do your work. Your work is supposed to be electing judges. If you can't do it, let us find some other way to select them, preferably some way with less partisan involvement. You don't want to hear me preach sermons, do you? That's, that's, that's enough. But good questions. Yes. Why would a constitutional convention be more representative of the people than the General Assembly is in, in preparing a new constitution or amendments to the constitution? A constitutional convention is understood to represent the body politic even if everybody who was eligible to vote did not vote for members. Members of the General Assembly are elected to represent their constituents in particular districts. And it's generally been agreed, constitutional scholars, lawyers, and judges, that constitutional conventions have more leeway to change things than General Assemblies do. A General Assembly is bound by that state constitution. But a convention can change anything it wants, subject to ratification by the people. Let me go back to, to one loathsome example in our own history. That Constitutional Convention of 1901 and 2 that was called to disfranchise black voters put that Constitution into effect without a ratification referendum. No voters voted on whether to accept or not accept that Constitution. Even though a majority of the members of that convention had promised when they were running for seats in that convention that they would write a new constitution and submit it to the voters for ratification or rejection. They realized that because they were disfranchising so many people, if they submitted that constitution to the voters, the voters would turn it down. So they voted just to put it into effect. And they got away with it. The Constitution, a Constitutional Convention can do almost anything it wants, which is both very democratic and also undemocratic. There ought to be limitations on any kind of a democratic process because it's not very far, as Brutus teaches us in Julius Caesar, between a republic 
and a dictatorship. Bound to be questions from some of the students. Yes, we're front row. Um, kind of going off that last question a little bit, um, you talked a little bit about how, you know, not a lot of people pay attention to state constitutions or I think kind of state politics in general. Do you think even if we elected constitutional conventions, people would be interested in and participating in the debates about that like they used to in, you know, Jacksonian era or whenever? I hope so. I mean, one of the virtues of having a constitutional convention every few decades is that it furnishes an occasion for everybody to say what they want. In the run-up to the convention, in deciding whether to have a convention, in the campaign for seats in the convention, in the campaign for ratification of what the convention does, people get a chance to talk about and exchange their own views on who should be able to vote, why, who should not be able to vote, why not. Uh, should any particular groups of people be exempt from paying taxes? Should any groups of people have special benefits under the Constitution? Debates like that could be good for the country. On the other hand, in a very highly partisan, competitive atmosphere that we have right now, um, perhaps reasoned debate would fall victim to shouting matches between people who are opposed to or in favor of abortion or some particular public policy issue rather than the larger public policy issue of what kind of government do we need for ourselves? So I can't answer whether it would work better. I would hope that it would. Um, I know everybody is afraid to try. We got out of the habit. We've just got out of the habit. If we had continued to have constitutional conventions throughout the second half of the 20th century, perhaps they wouldn't seem so abnormal. But, but before the second half of the 20th century, they were not abnormal. They were commonplace. They were a regularly recurring feature of American public life. There ain't no easy answers to any of this. Anybody who says there is is offering to sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. Um, we have time for a couple more questions, I think. Oh, yeah, one in the, almost in the back. You talked about the designation of the judges by the General Assembly. Do you have a recommendation on how or what you think we should do and how to designate our judges on those different levels beyond the General Assembly uh, choosing them? Well, the... Different states select judges by different ways. In some places, they are popularly elected. I mean, you can see benefits and drawbacks in that too, because that's definitely going to become a, a partisan issue in some elections. In some states, they've created special commissions composed of lawyers and lay people who review the list of potential judges and make recommendations to the governor, and the governor then appoints a judge and may or may not be subject to the confirmation of one or both houses of the General Assembly. This involves a lot more people, and it may, in some instances, remove some of the partisanship from the initial consideration of who should go in. But then on the other hand, you know, you'll remember just a few years ago, in 2019, we ratified an amendment to the state constitution that created a redistricting commission that was to be composed of equal numbers of Democrats and equal numbers of Republicans to draw electoral district boundaries for the two houses of the General Assembly and for the House of Representatives so that the legislators wouldn't do it themselves. So that the legislatures, members of the legislature would not draw district lines that would make it easier for them to get reelected. Well, the members of the commission acted exactly like the legislators. They deadlocked eight to eight, eight to eight, eight to eight on every single issue. They completely failed to act like grown-up responsible people and do what they were supposed to do in a nonpartisan or in a bipartisan way. Fortunately, the amendment had a safety valve in it, which was that if the commission could not perform its responsibilities, the state Supreme Court would redistrict the state. And the state Supreme Court did. 
It hired an experienced, very knowledgeable, very fair democratic consultant. And it also hired uh, an experienced, very knowledgeable, very fair Republican consultant and told them, you follow the law. Federal law is very clear on most of the issues involved in redistricting. You take the most recent census and you make sure that the district lines um, do not give anybody or any group an unfair advantage. They, re they redo the districts. Those are the districts that we're using for the elections that are coming up this fall. So they built in a safeguard so that if the partisanship was still too intense, they could get around it. Now, I mean, a lot of opponents of that amendment said it's not fair for unelected members of the Supreme Court of Virginia to be drawing electoral district boundaries, especially when nearly all of them were elected by Republican majorities in the General Assembly. The judges, however, did their job. We have one of those judges in the room. Um, thank you. They did their job properly. So maybe, maybe it's a good thing to get judges and lawyers involved in the initial process of deciding who might best be considered for a judicial appointment rather than leaving it exclusively in the hands of legislators who want to reward their political supporters. As I say, there ain't no easy answers. And no two states do it exactly the same. Virginia is one of the few, I don't remember how many, one of the few in which the members of the General Assembly elect all of the appellate court judges. In West Virginia, which used to be part of Virginia, elects nearly all of its judges in popular elections. Well, that's not a foolproof method either. The world is full of people. So long as that's the case, you're not going to get a foolproof method to anything. <laughs> Do we have time for one more if there's another question? Yeah, if there's two questions. Um, back to the goal of the 2025 Charter Convention that we're aiming toward. Um, does the authority remain the same from the prior conventions to establish the convention, or have there been hiccups that would interfere with um, the establishment of that or any type of legislation that could force it to happen? The mode that is prescribed in the Constitution for calling a convention, a constitutional convention, is that the General Assembly should, met, should submit that question to the voters. And they can decide, do we have a convention? Do we not have a convention? If we have a convention, then it's the General Assembly's responsibility to put an um, item on the ballot by which people can vote for members of that convention from their own districts. Um, that's, that's the way it would normally work. Okay, now the, back to the students. So Virginia has things like um, not having ballot initiatives, not having referenda, not having a recall process, and having non-consecutive governor terms. Why do we have that? Were there special political considerations put in for having those? Initiative by which voters can put legislative issues on the ballot and referendum by which voters can require that a public official stand for re-election before the term is up so that the voters can decide whether to keep them or get rid of them. Uh, those were very popular democratic reforms 100, 120 years ago because there was a lot of political corruption at the time, as I think everybody knows. And these were reforms that were trying to break political machines. Well, Virginia was under the domination then of the most dominant, most durable, most long-lasting political machine in the history of the United States. That's why we didn't get any of that. Why do governors of Virginia not have a chance to run for re-election? Blame George III. At the time of the American Revolution, all of the new states, in effect, kicked the king out of the colonial government. They all created very, very weak executive branches of government. I mean, the king was the executive branch of the government, had thousands of his appointees scattered all over the empire doing what the 
king and his ministers in London wanted doing. That was the whole reason, really, for the revolution. If the king had not cooperated with Parliament to enforce laws like the Stamp Acts and the Townsend Duties, there wouldn't have been a revolution. There was a great fear of excessive executive authority. So at the time of the revolution, they almost destroyed executive authority. In Virginia, for instance, the Constitution of 1776 provided for the election of governor. The General Assembly elected him for a one-year term. He could be elected twice. Any person who was elected three times in a row could not be governor again for at least four more years. And even more importantly, the General Assembly elected an eight-member, what they called Privy Council, or Council of State. And these people and the governor formed a plural executive. The governor could not act without the approval of a majority of the Council of State. A very weak executive. Governors complained for decades that by and large they had nothing to do except sign commissions for justices of the peace. During the Revolutionary War and during the War of 1812, when the responsibilities of the governors as commanders of the militia were very large, the powers of the governor were almost non-existent. Every time that we have a constitutional convention, this question comes up. The Constitution of 1830 changed the term of office from one year to three, with no chance of re-election. Constitution of 1854 changed it from three years to four with no possibility of re-election, and that's where we still are. It's the only state in the country, I think, that still prevents a governor from running for a second term. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, if you're, if you're thinking like a political scientist, you would say, well, that's a bad thing. People ought to have a right to re-elect a governor who does it the way that they want. But on the other hand, if you look at it like a politician, you would say some of these governors are not very good. Or they didn't get good until their term was nearly over. And that rotation in office may be an important guarantee against excessive accumulation of power in the hands of any public official. But I mean, it's been the, it's been the trend throughout the 19th and 20th centuries to allow governors more power, to allow governors to run for re-election at least once, and for most governors to gain the power to veto bills that the General Assembly had passed. I mean, from 1776 until 1869, no Virginia governor had authority to veto a bill the Assembly passed. Vetoes are commonplace now. Vetoes always go back to the General Assembly so that the people's elected representatives can decide whether to approve the veto and kill the law or kill the veto and approve the law. But governors did not. There was just a long history of um, distrust of a strong executive that began with George III. One more question. Okay. Um, hi. So you mentioned that like the current Virginia Constitution is very easily amendable, and for me that kind of made me think back to like the framers of the the U.S. Constitution and how wary they were of a constitution that's like subject to political whims or maybe um, has amendments that don't have widespread support. And so my question is, what do you think is like the merit of having an easily amendable constitution at the state level, and like when can that even potentially become dangerous? Well, that is a really good question, and it's a question that involves value adjustments and politics. Um, there's no hard and fast yes or no right or wrong answer on that. The federal constitution is extremely difficult to amend. You remember you have to get a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress and then ratification by three-fourths of the state legislatures to get an amendment into the constitution. You know, we, we should have, what, between 25 and 30 amendments to the constitution now in 130 some odd years. Well, Virginia, we have 60 in the last 50 years. In Virginia, the General Assembly can propose a constitutional amendment by a simple majority vote of both houses of the assembly. And then you wait till after the next election and they vote on that amendment again. 
if they approve that amendment again in the identical language, then it goes to the voters for approval or rejection at a ratification referendum. So it's, it's surprisingly easy to amend most state constitutions, including the Virginia one, which allows flexibility. It allows you to change with times. It may encourage too many amendments on matters that ought to be left to the discretion of the legislature to begin with, like a tax exemption for a, a, an injured veteran. There's no real reason why that should be in a state constitution. There are things that ought to be left to the General Assembly's discretion. If the General Assembly is proposing amendments one after the other every two or three years, then of course the General Assembly is exercising a vast deal of discretion. And as you suggest, it may be too much. Once again, there ain't no easy answer. It involves your perception of representative democracy. It involves your perception of the importance of the issues. It involves your partisan allegiance and your own uh, personal views on matters of controversial public importance. We're not all going to agree. Anyway, I thank you for staying awake. Um, as, I, as, I, as I sometimes say, I taught school a little bit before I became a research historian and, and, and when I would teach and when I would occasionally make a talk. I have two criteria for whether I succeeded or failed. Did anybody snore? <laughs> Nobody snored. And did anybody ask good questions? Lots of good questions. Thank you. That was wonderful. I hope you'll join Brent outside um, for a book signing. We have plenty of books. Thank you so much for being here. Join me for one more round of applause. Thank you.